Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Welcome to Politics in Question, the podcast where we ask the big questions about our political institutions, how they are failing, and how we might fix them. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. I'm Julia Azari. I'm a professor of political science at Marquette University. So we are recording this podcast on October 3rd. It is a month before the 2022 midterm elections. And this is the season in which all of us who follow politics start watching the polls obsessively. So can the polls tell us anything that we couldn't just guess Are the polls misleading us? Are the polls useful? Is polling good or bad for democracy? Well, I couldn't ask for a better guest to discuss these topics with us than G. Elliot Morris, who is a data journalist and U.S. correspondent at The Economist. He's the author of the wonderful new book, Strength in Numbers, How Polls Work and Why We Need Them, which I described on the back cover as, quote, a vibrant and compelling intellectual history of polling that will make you a much smarter and savvier reader of all those polls. So welcome, Elliot, to the podcast. And I think we all look forward to being smarter and savvier after a conversation with you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And I should say, thanks especially for letting me come back to the deep well that is publicity from Lee Drummond. Well, well, we'll see how deep it goes. So let us start by talking to you about something that you are uh, deep in the well of right now, which is the forecasting model over at The Economist, uh, which you've spent a long time thinking about and, and building, and I'm sure probably during this podcast, there will be millions of people obsessively checking it to see who's going to win the Senate, who's going to win the House. But what I want to know, and what I think a lot of folks who might listen to this podcast want to know is, how do you think about building this model? What are the pieces of it? What are the choices that you make? What are the choices that you make in terms of how to weight different polls, how to think about bias in polling? how to think about history versus the uniqueness of this election, and whether we can even trust polls at all anymore. Yeah, that's a good and insanely big question, but I'll answer it in a slightly different way. And that is by posing a different question. And this is the question that the model is designed to answer for us. And that is, in previous elections, in our historical data set, what we call our training set in statistician or machine learning language, how often did candidate A win when they had advantages in our indicators of X or Y or Z percentage points? So that's the sort of mathematical expression here that we're trying to solve for. And maybe in more accessible English, all we really want to know whether or not This is from the polls or from modeling of, say, economic data or like past election results, both of which enter the model in various stages, is are current leads 
in these indicators, translating to victory for the leading candidate most of the time, or is this a close election? And to answer your first quite one of your first questions in this podcast, I think that question is pretty well approximated by most informed readers of politics. But what the quantitative models offer are a set of rules that are formalized by the model for thinking through how we answer that question and maybe more comprehensive answers on more races than we could analyze ourselves. But maybe we can go from there because you've... Yeah, let me let me just, just make that a little bit more specific because uh, although some of us are, are, are quite nerdy and, and follow that logic, I think it might help to have a specific example. So pr- probably the most high-profile or one of the most high-profile Senate races this year is the Fetterman-Oz race in Pennsylvania, which Fetterman seems to have a decent lead, but uh, maybe that lead is slipping a little bit. So so how do you think about modeling a race like that? What, what are the factors that you might take into account? And putting what you just said through that lens, like, how do we think about that? Yeah, so through this lens of our big question, which is how often would John Fetterman win a previous election at whatever state of the race we're quantifying, the way we quantify that is by looking at a lot of different indicators, the big ones being polling data, fundraising data, and um, a set of predictors that tend to predict election results in the past that we call the fundamentals. And that's stuff like whether or not there's an incumbent running in the seat, whether or not that seat, or I guess in this case, the state tends to lean to the left or the right of the nation as a whole, what we call partisan lean, and whether or not in presidential elections, and then whether or not there are differences between that presidential partisan lean or what happens in other federal or down-ballot races. So, I mean, I actually don't have the precise numbers for all these factors in front of me, believe it or not. But what I can say is that the polling data there is really good for John Fetterman today. Uh, It has him winning the race in this snapshot in time. Uh, So if the election were held today, the polls say John Fetterman would win by about seven percentage points on average with some degree of uncertainty. And the model quantifies that uncertainty. And it's like an eight percentage point or something margin of error on his margin of victory right now. So it's not saying he's a foregone conclusion, at least according to the polls, but that he has a pretty good shot. And then the fundraising data, he's also doing rather well. He's outraising Mehmet Oz. You know, we think that fundraising might be a, a proxy for enthusiasm for the for the candidate or maybe an indicator of their quality. Um, he's also held office before, so he has a sort of mark on his quality variable. And so what we do is, you know, we can record all of these factors for previous elections. You know, on October 3rd in previous elections in each race, what are all these indicators say? And then we train our statistical models to predict how, you know, the the answer to our big question, how often when the indicators align with what the indicators for John Fetterman are showing today, does the candidate go on to win the Pennsylvania Senate race? Right. So, so to break this down, what we're saying is that while the polling itself is important, there are a bunch of other variables that give us additional information. So just averaging polls together alone is not going to give us the, the complete picture. It gives us a really good picture. Polls are the single best predictor of election outcomes, probably because you're asking people how they're going to vote. I mean, that tends to do a relatively good job. But of course, they're not perfect. And we have this other set of 
well, you know, again, what we call the fundamentals indicators that also tend to predict election outcomes pretty well. So, you know, in the statistician's terms, we're trying to be Bayesian about this and we're trying to update our prediction for the race based off of all these different indicators. In Pennsylvania, they tend to agree, but what about in races where they don't agree? Say in Wisconsin, where the incumbent Ron Johnson's running against Democrat Mandela Barnes, where the polls say it's pretty close or maybe Democrats lead, but the fundamentals say, hey, this is a pretty red state compared to the nation as a whole, especially in previous elections where Ron Johnson has, has run. And there, there's a difference. And our model says, you know, where there's big differences, it helps to take a more holistic view of elections. That is not to rely solely on the polls. And that's because, you know, that's because they're uncertain. And the model wants to take information from from multiple indicators to think about things through multiple lenses, apart from just the polls. Yeah, so on this Wisconsin topic, before I recorded this podcast with with you guys, I was uh, talking to a journalist about uh, this very topic. And it made me think about, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot as we've watched the polls in Wisconsin, as I've, you know, been up close and personal with a number of the elections where the polls have been off in question and facing a lot of questions and skepticism about polls that I, I sort of agree with you, I think are sort of the product of hype. I don't know. One of the things I really like about your, your book is that it gets into this more sort of philosophical way of thinking about polls. And so I wanted to put a question to you that I've, I've been trying to get my students to think about with mixed success about whether what we're trying to do when we're trying to predict elections is, are we trying to know things that are fundamentally unknowable? Or is this just a matter of sort of refining the tools that we have to, you know, I was like, I was trying to explain the the likely voter screen to them in class and how that's one theory of what went wrong in 2016. Um, So I, I was curious, I know this is kind of a big question, but I figured you would almost certainly have something interesting to say in response. So if, if the options here are, are pollsters trying to solve a methodological problem or are they trying to do something unknowable? I'm going to give you the like weasel way out and just say they're trying to do both. And my justification for this is there are methodological issues that uh, have led recently to polls overestimating support for Democratic candidates like 2016, as you mentioned, 2020 and 2018 in some states, Ohio being a particularly egregious example And those methodological problems include stuff like pollsters underestimating the number of Republicans between or inside of demographic groups. So while they might have enough white voters, they don't have enough Republican white voters or what have you. And because pollsters, and I guess we'll get, you know, we might get into more of this discussion later about waiting, but because pollsters don't know the right number of Republicans in, say, Wisconsin, especially white Republicans, they can't solve for that bias. Um, but that is a methodological problem. I, I think the likely voter filter is some is closer to this. Are are pollsters doing something that is fundamentally unknowable, that is sort of ephemeral, and that is trying to anticipate what the electorate is going to be. In the words of Elmo Roper's son, Bud, the likely voter universe appears on election day and then immediately disappears. It is not measurable before or after. Um, and when you're trying to sample that sort of emerging and disappearing electorate, all you're going to do is make guesses. Um, And that increases the margin of error, increases the uncertainty in polls. Um, And so that's just sort of another, that is closer to the sort of like 
magic or sort of art of polling rather than the science. But there are, you know, there are scientific problems with polling. I, I want to stress there are methodological problems and perhaps even solutions to those problems. It's not just um, problems of guesswork. Just because this sort of nicely dovetails with some of the other things I was thinking about while I was looking at the book. I think my theory about Wisconsin is that it just defies there being any sort of stable state majority, no matter what. So, you know, if there's if there's a moment in which the Republican incumbent is up, then the Democratic incumbent will be down and vice versa. And it's just it's partly the state is very, very close. But I have this sort of theory that there's something else going on there. And this is kind of a wackadoodle theory. But I think it does speak to the other thing that jumped out at me as I was reading your book, which was kind of about the the importance of majorities as a kind of concept for democracy. I think that's a really critical one right now. I think we ought to be talking more about majoritarian approaches to politics and the, the sort of beauty of the majority. But it was it's also interesting to me that I do think there are situations in the United States in which, you know, you sort of you often have two options and yet somehow we defy uh, a stable majority on some of these questions. That turned into not really a question. I was going to say it's more of a comment than a question. <laughs> I'm an academic. Welcome to politics in question. So <laughs> I, I just one thing I, I just add on top of that is there's all these political science studies that show how there's an effect of weather on turnout. And I, I've seen some that like if the local sports team wins on uh, you know on the football game on the Sunday or Saturday before if it's college football, that the incumbent does better. So there's all these like random little blips that could go in one direction or another. And when we have a election that is a 50-50 election, it doesn't take that much of a blip in one direction or another direction to lead us to a very different majority. Uh, but let's, I want to move this conversation uh, forward to move from candidate polling to issue polling. And I, I think Although these are both in the uh, broader umbrella of polling, there are some very different questions that arise when we start thinking about issue polling. So I want to just start this conversation by uh, kind of thinking about the flaws of issue polling which is that they're, of course, highly sensitive to elite queuing, that if you tell somebody that, that Democrats support this or Republicans support this, that can uh, swamp the effects. They're highly susceptible to issue framing, to whether you put the, how you frame the benefits, whether you focus on the trade-offs. Yet, Elliot, you, you write that abandoning polling leaves the public worse off in the fight for democracy. In a world without polls, people will be left listening only to themselves and those closest to them or to the loudest voices on television and social media. But one of the things I, I do really like about this book and one reason why I commend it is you do a really nice job of chronicling the history of the debate over whether polls tell us more in a way that's useful or tell us more in a way that is distracting and harmful to democracy. So I'd love it if you could just kind of take us through that debate a little bit uh, in more detail and tell us why you come out on the side of polling, including issue polling, is good for democracy. Well, I, I think 
a good starting point is actually Julia's recent question, which is what are polls useful for? And there's two maybe categories of answers here. The first being the electoral horse race sort of journalistic application of polling, which, like we've mentioned, is a really uncertain process. And how I write in the book is also very tense. And it leads to overestimations of candidates' sort of probabilities of victory, not not even by election modelers, just by anyone reading the polls, because they have stakes in those candidates winning. And that, I think, in turn leads to degradation of polling as a tool for the more important thing, which is identifying where majorities stand. And, you know, in a way, at least on this topic, the book is like a nerdy conversation about polls disguising a more fundamental question about democracy, which is, what do we really care what the majority wants? And again, here, maybe there's two ways to answer the question. Um, at least in terms of how polls are informing that debate and informing policy outcomes, or at least out- outputs, not outcomes. Um, and that, you know, we can start by looking at the history of polls and how they're used by government leaders. That's what the book does. Um, you know, there's, we have records of polls, straw polls being used in the 1800s uh, by newspapers and by leaders. And then more formalized, more scientific, and I'm putting that in quotes for people, who can't see us, uh, scientific polls by people like George Gallup, sort of pre-scientific, I would say, um, by the Franklin Roosevelt White House, and in pretty much every president thereafter that used polls maybe sometimes to change their opinions on, on things, but mostly to highlight the more popular parts of their agenda for the public. And if we take that theory one step further, which you know might be that voters then vote for parties that highlight the sort of things that they agree on or are most important to them or might reward them for doing those things or punish them for not doing those things. And the example of the negative here, I think, is Richard Nixon, who was a sort of voracious consumer of mostly approval polls, but also his White House had their own public polling operation on the issues. And maybe maybe this is a reason why he supported things that we might not expect conservatives to support nowadays. Um like, you know, the sort of equality acts and nuclear power sort of conservation. And, you know, we, and we can take that forward to modernity too, where there's even in some examples from the Trump White House of him not doing things or saying things or making speeches that he would have other, otherwise made, as unbelievable as this might be, because the polls showed him sort of being rated very negatively. And these examples are in the book. So with this historical lens, we, we at least know that politicians are reacting to the polls. And I think, therefore, we have to embrace that there's some positive role for elevating the voice of the people in the president's being able to communicate with the majority via via the polls. But maybe there's not a clear majority, and maybe polls are showing something is 50-50, or maybe you're taking a poll on something that really shouldn't be a question for the people, like maybe foreign wars or more bureaucratic decisions. And so here, I think we have to exercise, or I would argue that people consuming polls have to exercise some discretion. And in reading the book, I think I make very clear that I'm not saying that we should have a, a government by survey, as the political scientist Sidney Verba called it, but instead to use them as a rough guide for sort of elevating the, the voice of the people where it otherwise wouldn't necessarily be present or be heard. Um, whether or not you know that's in Congress, where the electoral connection might be broken, or in the White House, where there's lot of other incentives. But I'll, okay, so I'll just say another thing too, just picking up on one of the criticisms of polls that you mentioned, Lee, 
which is that they echo elite preferences. Well, I would also say voters <laughs> voters echo elite preferences too um, in making their decisions or they toe the party line also. So even if polls are picking up the degree to which voters are echoing the preferences of opinion leaders that they hold in regard or their party line, that's still telling us something about what they hold. Now, then the second order question about whether or not we should be making decisions based off of these preferences that the people hold is sort of something that I, you know, the book isn't entirely trying to um, to answer the sort of more fundamental question of whether or not democracy is valuable. Yeah, I want to I want to ask all the questions. But so I actually want to move this into slightly different territory, because this, again, is the kind of thing I've been thinking about a lot in the wake of, of 2016 and the sort of criticisms of polls after 2020. And this is, you know, sort of getting at what you point out, which is the polls aren't perfect, but it's better than what it's better than what we would have otherwise. And I think that's, that's a really critical insight. And I wonder what you think are the prospects for sort of improving statistical literacy such that we, we get people to sort of like epistemologically embrace the idea that there's something in between knowing something precisely and just anything goes, anything could be right. Like that idea of there being a sort of interval of possible correctness, I find is really counterintuitive to people who haven't taken statistics. And I mean, do you see the answer is just, you know, more people take statistics? How do we, how do we convey this? Well, there's that really great Bill James quote about, you know, the alternative to statistics is not no statistics is bad statistics. Well, you know, as you bring up statistics and knowledge, I think maybe we can apply that to polls too. Like the alternative to knowledge about public opinion is not no knowledge of that thing, but bad knowledge of that thing, biased, informed by say the media or social media or like demagogues, maybe on, on the sort of worse end of that spectrum or just people out for their own selfish self-interest. And I don't know how necessarily to get every American to like listen to this podcast and accept that uh, notion uh, as true. Although obviously for y'all, it would be really great if every American did that. But what I, you know, what I can say is that that message is definitely missing in political coverage. And it's the, it's the reason I wrote the book. I mean, I, I started out covering politics from the sort of election predictor point of view, the sort of solely a political handicapper framing um, when I was making election models in college. And when I decided to write the book, that's also where I started, uh, sort of how to guide to polls and prediction, where you know ev- everything I know about polls and prediction for interested readers. But quickly, where you go from there is like the more fundamental democratic questions. So what I really want people to take away from the book is, yeah, if, if you treat these tools not as tools of laser-like predictive accuracy, then you unlock a lot more utility from them. And indeed, like the past few elections show that you that we can't expect this of the pollsters, which just makes it all the more puzzling and a bit frustrating to me that we make the same, you know, sort of royal we here mistakes in analyzing polls year after year after year with the media expecting them to be sort of hyper accurate and unbiased on average. And that's going to be harmful to our sort of greater purpose, what we're trying to achieve, putting my citizen hat on now, which is democracy and, and representation. You can wear two hats, both the citizen hat and the analyst hat here. And there's been a lot of debate about whether how much polls should guide, particularly what what Democrats should do, this so-called popularism uh, debate, where on one side you, you have 
folks who say, well, we've we've figured out what are the messages that Democrats should be saying because we've done this rigorous uh, polling to show that these issues get more agreement. And so therefore, we should follow these findings. And then on the other side is a more holistic view of, I think, of how public opinion works, which and, and particularly elections, which is that most people are already locked into their partisan teams and don't really pay that much attention to issues. They, to the extent that they do, it's sort of what percolates in the in the week or two before the election. You know, if it's the the James Comey letter, for example, or whatever the October surprise that emerges, and it's really hard to know what's going to define the election. But we shouldn't get too hung up on the individual messages because you know, one, it's not clear what breaks through, but Two, to your point, there's a lot of imprecision in polling. And moreover, I think one of the problems, and we you kind of talk about, well, poll, polls should allow the public uh, to express majority preferences, but there's a lot of contradictions in public opinion writ large. There are people who want contradictory things. You know, classic examples, people would like lower taxes, but they like more social spending. Most voters or many voters are operationally or, or the electorate as a whole is operationally liberal, but ideological conservative people like small government, but they like individual government programs. So like how much should we rely on individual issue polls to guide political strategy, to how much should we think about polls with a, a wide margin of error and think about the, the contradictions inherent in the broader shape of public opinion? And, and you know, if these majorities are contradictory or, or unstable, what does it even mean for there to be a majority view? Can I ask a question to you, the interviewer? Which is, sure. you've just told a really interesting story, Lee, about contradictions in the average American's mind, or maybe in in the mass public's sort of general will. How do you know, Lee Drutman, sitting in front of your computer, that Americans support sort of lower taxes, but also social services? Well, of course, polling, right? <laughs> and you probably, right, wouldn't tell that one story based off of one individual poll as a, as a smart consumer of polls, I would expect not. And I, so I think the answer is sort of in the question, which is, yeah, people should not take one individual issue poll at face value, just like they shouldn't do that for an election. Because as you note, like the sort of political psychology of the average person is very complex and even among partisans is very complex or people with well-sorted preferences is complex. And so if you're going to give a sort of fair reading then um, you can't do that. You also can't do it for practical reasons, right? Which is like these issues of question wording or framing and then you know, additional sampling or sort of non-sampling issues like weighting, weighting data, who you're interviewing. You know, but again, I guess I'll sort of just go back to like my talking points here, which is if you take these indicators on average, right? Studies of ballot preferences have shown even in referenda polls are a pretty good guide of opinion 
even, you know, they might underestimate the status quo, but on average, the um, preferences for issues that people vote on, for policies that people vote on, tend to be pretty good predictors of how they actual how they actually vote. So I guess sort of the answer here is to like average them and, and treat them fairly. And that's not something that I think people are accustomed to doing with polls. It requires us to think about them a little more as scientists than readers of the news. But, you know, these are scientific indicators. I don't think they ever should have been, maybe I'll say it this way. I, I think, you know, when we are reading scientific articles, for example, typically they're reported on by science journalists who know the process of science and the uncertainty in the data generating process of all that science. And I think we have to do the same. We have to do the same thing for polls. Well played. So, right. So, I mean, th- this is this is the crucial point is that just as with horse race polling, any individual poll could be off. So with polling on issues, you know, any individual polling may be spurious. But the, the more information we take in, the more polling we take in, the more we get a nuanced perspective. And so, of course, the headline is don't trust any single poll, no matter what it is. Yeah, fair enough. I think, yes. I don't have anything else to say besides correct. So if I can ask one more question, I kind of want to ask about the, I guess we could call it bandwagoning effect. This is also kind of one of the one of the discourse criticisms of polling in the election context which is you know does electability become a self-fulfilling prophecy do people you know is this process of having a lot of publicly available polls on the one hand we're getting a lot of information but on the other hand is it packaging the information in a particular way that shapes people's preferences in some some form or fashion that can be considered undemocratic i think that that is really hard for me to answer. And uh, maybe I'll just say sort of how I'm thinking through this question. And the book doesn't necessarily have an answer. So maybe that's why this is hard. The thing I'm immediately thinking of is that people follow the leader of their social groups all the time. They follow the leader of people they think, uh, or the lead of people who they think represent them, or who have their interests at heart. So If, and this is a big if, I guess, we accept that the majority has the majority's interests at heart most of the time, then I would think, therefore, that a bandwagon effect for the majority would be good on average. But I guess, in to maybe use the word of the sort of modeling words here, in that error term, that is, in cases that aren't the average case here, I guess that could be particularly damaging. I think there are some recent studies on this, on the magnitude of the bandwagon effect. And I don't know the, I don't, I don't know what they find. Maybe I should go read them. But uh, I think, I think maybe to sum up that this is pr- probably one of the closer or the, the better um, criticisms of the polls and how they get used. But may, maybe there's also other bandwagon effects in politics that are bad or equally as bad. I'm not quite sure. What do you think, Julia? <laughs> I do think. I mean, I think more information is more better. Um, I, and I was, in a lot of ways, like kind of skeptical of some of these criticisms. In 2016, there was a lot of criticism of kind of like, does having election forecasting tell people something about the election that then like demobilizes them? And to me, it's it's kind of a question of okay, well, why is that connection there? Why is the mobilization process so so susceptible to that? So I'm a little skeptical of that phenomenon. I know, um, you know, we had, Lee and I kind of talked about electability at different points in this podcast. I am a little bit, 
you know, concerned about that idea that if a candidate, for example, in our very messy uh, nominations process for presidential nominations, that when a candidate polls well early on, then that does kind of become a little bit of a, a feedback effect. But again, to me, that's not that's not reflective of a problem with polling. It's a reflection of the fact that polling is is part of this larger institutional and social reality that we need to deal with. That's an effect of our crappy nomination process. It's not polling's fault, I guess is how I would how I would put it. Um, but on the other hand, I think it's hard to deny that putting information out there does affect reality, going back to my question about sort of things being fundamentally unknowable. Yeah, well, I just want to build on that because actually this gets at, to, to me, uh, this like really interesting question about how we should reason through public policy. And one idea is that, well, we, we should all come to this independently and and without being influenced by what other people think. But as you note, Elliot, that's not how decision-making ever happens in the real world, is that we are social creatures and we want to know what other people think because we don't entirely trust our own judgment and probably for good reasons because none of us are omniscient. So we can get into all kinds of, of weird cascades where we follow one person who we think knows something and then winds up we're all being misled. This is sort of how stock market bubbles happen and this, this sort of cascade effect where nobody knows exactly what to think, but everybody is following someone else. And to the extent that polls can exacerbate that, uh, that, that could become a problem. On the other hand, like uh, sometimes it's helpful to know what other people think because collective intelligence can also be extremely valuable and smarter than individual intelligence. So uh, I'm not sure if there's any way to, to distinguish how reasoning together makes us smarter versus reasoning together makes us dumber. And maybe there are some good practices that pollsters and polling aficionados could incorporate into how they, they think about this. I'm not sure that there are. One thing I was thinking about when you were asking this comment slash question, Lee, is putting my reporter hat back on. When I talk to public pollsters about sort of why they do things, they give this sort of democratic spiel. Oh, this is an important tool. Like the rough shape of public opinion is something that we should know from a like normative lowercase d democratic point of view. They also say just, you know, like people are curious. They, they want to know what their neighbors think. They want to know maybe that maybe they want to know if the majority agrees with them so they can sort of argue for stuff they like or maybe it's also of some utility to know if you're in the minority if you're trying to change policy toward the the sort of right way to do things in your view or the right policies in your view so yeah at least among the pollsters there seems to be some agreement that the knowledge that the polls provide is just useful in itself you know and then of course there's really no other way to come at that knowledge, to arrive at that knowledge, whether or not it's the ground truth, right, because of the uncertainty, whether or not it is of like maximal lowercase d democratic value are sort of the second order questions. But um, in and of itself, this is value that is, or sorry, knowledge that is not, you know, established via any other means, I guess, as reliably. Right. But I mean, I guess the, the problem is that, that it can be distorted and I see all kinds of 
people doing polls to show that some issue is popular in some state or some district in order to get a member of Congress or a senator to support this and whether or not that polling methodology is accurate or not. I I think it's not something that the senator or the congressman often knows. And this gets back to your, to your larger point that a lot of people are incredibly unsophisticated consumers of polling, and they don't understand the difference between good polling and bad polling. They don't understand the difference between one poll and many polls. And this is why everybody should read your book, right? Yep, that's a good plug. Yeah. So to bring us to a close, I wonder what you're seeing in terms of methodological advances in polling and how you make sense of the advances and which ones you think are promising, which ones less so. And like, what, what does it mean to be a responsible pollster in 2022? I uh, will start by giving two categories of polling error from recent elections. And the first is the 2020 and 2016 errors where samples don't include enough Republicans. And in 2016, maybe this was because samples also from the pollsters did not include, on average, enough working class white voters. Polls weren't weighted, in other words, to the share of the electorate that is white and does not hold a college degree. In 2020, even if you did that, your poll still would have underestimated Republicans again, on average, because the Republicans that were answering polls were the ones that were less likely to vote for Republican candidates. Um, so there was a undersampling, in other words, of the most Republican people in the electorate. And those are hard methodological problems to solve. But uh, I guess to get back to the likely voter conversation, they are sort of methodological issues that do have solutions. And those solutions, uh, at least at the time I was reporting the book, so about you know six months ago or a year ago, included things like the Pew Research Center recruiting panelists for their online polls, for the online panel, their non-probability panel. Uh, actually, it's a probability panel because they shifted to recruiting these people via mail, where they would mail them a postcard um, with a link to fill out the survey online to people that they had sampled randomly off of the postal service's ma master address list. And then if they didn't respond, they would send them another postcard, and then they'd send them money, and then they'd send them more money, and then they'd send them finally an envelope with the entire survey printed out that they could just fill out and mail back. And this seems to have improved response rates to roughly 28%, according to Pew, and also dramatically improved representativeness of the most Republican conservative members of society and the most religious, most evangelical um, in particular. So that's one way you could do it, but that costs a lot of money. So another way you could do it is to move all of your polling to the voter file, where you sample registered Democrats and Republicans you know, in proportion to their number in the population. And methodologically, that's a pretty good solution. It's better than randomly dialing phone numbers. It's better than just taking a convenient sample online or via SMS text or however you want to do that. Um, but it still leads to errors. And so here's the sort of second problem. This is the likely voter problem we talked about earlier, which is even if you do that, as Patrick Murray, the pollster for Monmouth University, told me recently, you still get into a lot of trouble predicting who's likely to vote, or you can even with a really good likely voter model like the one he has. He missed the outcome of the 2021 New Jersey governor's race, he attests entirely because 
of the likely voter filter. And so that's an area where you can make some methodological improvements, mainly by turning to more statistical model-based estimates of likely voters. But here's the problem is that makes polls even harder to distinguish or for, for, to, to, to dissect for the individual American consumer of, of polls. Um, and it makes my job a lot harder because then I have to spend a lot of time going through methodological discussions like these with people who don't have degrees in statistics or math or political science, which, you know, hey, is also kind of fun. Maybe I should say with my nerd hat on. And then it means, you know, you have fewer polls because they're harder to do or you have less accurate polls, which is also sort of a weakness. So um, I would say there's, you know, there's no clear solution here, but the arc, the long arc of polling is improvements in methods and accuracy over time. So we can kind of hope that that arc continues. And definitely there are some promising methods, although I would not say that the problem is solved in the run up to this year's midterms. All right. Well, problems left to be resolved, questions left to be answered, polling on balance, good, but not perfect. And uh, for those who like to participate in polls, maybe, maybe you should go vote five stars on the Politics in Question podcast, because that, that, that will totally influence public opinion with the bandwagon cascade effect of, of high star podcasts getting, getting more attention. So read your polls with a grain of salt. Don't overweight any single poll and keep listening to Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.